I gotta say, I'm, I'm really glad to be back this morning. It's a pie chart of why I'm glad to be back, but that was a significant sliver of the pie was the anticipation of, of Paul's wine jokes. And so, um, so I'll be coming back as long as this event is sort of before us. And when it gets over, then, well, I'll see you later. Um, good morning. Glad you're here. Anyone? Good morning. Good morning. Um, are you ready to think a little bit this morning? And... Um, yeah, you know that's why Renaissance provides the coffee, right? To like awaken you from the stupor you had when you came in. Um, one, of my, one of my spiritual heroes, years ago I had the, the privilege of having lunch with him before he passed away. He was a prolific author, uh, philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, uh, and a Sunday school teacher. And he, uh, as we were having lunch, I asked him if he ever preached in his local church. And he said to me with a deep sigh, he said, I used to. He said, but now what I've found was that people come to church just for a little bit of encouragement to get them back on their way. He said, they really don't come anymore to learn. And, and it wasn't a put down. It was to say that there's so much happening in life, so much turmoil, so much influx, so much anxiety that, that often congregations are overloaded and, and the, the idea of learning on a Sunday morning can sometimes seem too much. And whereas my longing is to encourage and to sow seeds of, uh, of, of just giving uh, helpful ways of seeing life spiritually uh, through the way of Jesus, I, I also want to prove him wrong this morning, that you are here and that, that you want to maybe learn something new. Am I right about that? Am I, maybe, one of you. I'm glad, this is for you, man. This is for you. Uh, that being said, uh, let's, let's learn a little bit this morning because the fruit of the Spirit is, is love and joy and peace. We've been in this series about the fruit of the Spirit, which what comes out of a life that is immersed in God, right? What's the fruit of a life that positions itself to be nourished, so fruit isn't striving and forcing and manufacturing a different life. It's resting in God and seeking God in such a way where the, the divine life of God happens through us. It's beautiful. It's not something we earn or force. It's something God does in us. And so if the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness, as we talked last week, and it's also self-control self-control. And that's sort of the downer fruit. We're pretty excited about joy. We're pretty excited about love. And you get to self-control, and that's a bit out of fashion in the 21st century. But here's the thing. It wasn't out of fashion in the 4th century BCE. So before Christ even came to the earth, there was philosophies, there was worldviews, there was different understandings. And the thing about it is the Greeks loved self-control. Meet Socrates. They just don't grow beards like this anymore. <laughs> Gentlemen in the room, I dare you to challenge the beard of Socrates. Now that would be a good fall event, right? Socrates considered self-control to be foundational to human virtue. In fact, he believed that no one was actually that serious about the spiritual life, about the moral life, unless they were first serious about self-control. You can see we've come a long way from the 4th century BCE. Now meet Xenophon. Xenophon was one of, uh, uh, was one of Socrates' disciples. 
and this is called a bust, which is like the ancient version of the selfie. It's pretty amazing, right? So Xenophon comes along and he says this. He says, shall not every man hold self-control to be the foundation of all virtue? Now, do you ever hear that today? That, that's just not even present. And first lay this foundation firmly in his soul, for who without this can learn any good? Now, does that sound familiar? No. No, it doesn't. Because it sounds nothing like the 21st century that we live in. I mean, we'd be hard-pressed to go really anywhere in our society and find self-control celebrated. It's actually often the opposite, in fact. And to understand self-control, I'm curious of how we got to this place. If that's how it was in the 4th century BCE, what has happened in human history that's led us to a place where self-control is a, a bit of a laugher. It's a bit of a downer at the water cooler. No one really wants to talk about this topic, and yet Paul says it's actually really integral to being part of what it means to follow God, that this is part of the divine attribute of what it means to become like God. So I'm interested in three questions this morning, and we'll move through them briefly. The first is this, where have we been? What has historically created the society that we experience today, right? I think that's un it's important that we understand that we're not sort of um, made in a vacuum. Culture isn't made in a vacuum. Society isn't made in a vacuum. It's, it's, it's contingent on the things that came before it that led us to this moment. So where have we been? How can we begin to understand this better? The second question is, where are we now? And the third question is, where is all of this going? So let's begin with where we've been, and I want to take you back to the Enlightenment, because to understand self-control in our time, we don't need to go back to the 4th century BCE, we need to go back a couple hundred years to the 17th century, and it begins with the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment was this, it was simply a new basis for truth, and here was the desire of Enlightenment. Are you with me here? Here we go. We're learning this morning. The desire for Enlightenment was optimism, was progress was knowledge. In other words, at this time, people were sick and tired of being stuck in what we know as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. They wanted something new. They had seen generation after generation come and get stuck in culture, get stuck in authority, and they wanted to find a new basis for truth. Now, two ingredients went into the Enlightenment. Here we go. We're learning this morning. We have Enlightenment at the top. The first one is this. We have rationalism. And the idea of rationalism, which we still experience the residue today of rationalism, is that reason replaces faith. Reason over faith. Faith gets minimized. Reason comes in to the forefront of what it means to be human. In other words, what is real, what is ultimate, it must be rational that faith has no place in society anymore that what is real and ultimate, we can't leave to faith. We have to be rational about it. Now, when we talk about reason, we need to think about Descartes. Or as I said in middle school, Descartes. We have to think about Descartes. We have to think about Descartes and the things that he was about, whose mustache was enviable and probably served as inspiration to Tom Selleck, right? <laughs> so Descartes believed that we must employ the principles of rational logic to discover truth. In other words, his famous aphorism, does anyone know it? I think, therefore I am, that everything needs to be rational. 
And if it's not, then surely it cannot be truth. Now, the second thing to rationalism that complemented it was empiricism. And empiricism uh, had the understanding of certitude over mystery. We need to get rid of all mysteries. If there's a mystery in life, if there's a mystery in faith, get rid of it because it can't be true. Let's only agree to things that we can find certitude around, right? The scientific method, what is real, what is true, is only that that can be observed through sensory experience. And what are those things? Sensory experience is that which I hear and that which I see and taste and touch and smell, which is why John Locke probably had such a long nose, right? The sensory experience replaces anything with mystery. If you can't touch it and taste it, it can't be real. And what you get with empiricism and rationalism, here's, here's how this breaks down. It moves us into a departure of traditional patterns of authority. Society was tired of the political exploitation of the monarchy. And society in the dark ages, they were tired of the abuses within the institutional church because the church isn't perfect either. And they said, we've got to find a new way forward to get out of this into this new thing that was called the Enlightenment. In other words, what's happening in the 17th century that leads up to where we are today, because remember, we're not in a vacuum here. What happens in the 17th century, something seismic is rising up and it's about to erupt in culture at this time, which we still feel the effects today. Are you with me so far? Are we awake? Do we have enough coffee? Do we need a coffee break? Here we go. Let's keep moving forward. This is going somewhere with regard to self-control, I think. So you add up all these ingredients, the enlightenment, empiricism, rationalism, and when they stir over the course of a couple hundred years, you get to the 19th century and you enter into the modern self, which we still know of today. And here's what the modern self offered in the 19th century. It offered this theory. What we want to do is we want to maximize personal freedom. And that was inherent in our constitution. Not a problem with it. It's just understand this is, this is American life. We were conceived in this sort of recipe. Maximize personal freedom, minimize external constraints. Does that make sense? These are the two ingredients of the modern self. In other words, external authority cannot be trusted. And from the 17th century forward, you get the mantra, trust thyself down with the monarchy, down with the church, down with institutional authority telling us what is true. In other words, Twisted Sister was tapping into something sacred when they sang, we're not gonna take it. Boom, boom. No, we ain't gonna take it. Everybody now, we're not gonna take it anymore, right? So this, this sort of encapsulates the spirit of leaving the dark ages, moving through the enlightenment and into the modern age, that the final authority in one's life would be one's individual own conscience. What does that mean about community? What does that mean about accountability? What does that mean about submission to authority, about believing in something greater outside of yourself and your own thoughts? That self-reasoning begins to be the mantra of this age. So the 17th century through the 19th century, which led us up to, up to now, it was a time of optimism. It was a time of scientific progress. It was a time of rational thought. It was a time of radical individuality. But then 
something happened in the 20th century. Who knows? Two things happened, really. World War I and World War II. Up until that time, the belief in all this optimism about human potential, it was that given enough time, we're on this massive move for progress, and if we can just continue to scale this, we will eventually reach a utopian society. And all of that goes up in flames with World War I and II, and it eventually leads us to where we are, which is late modernity, or as some would call post-modernity. And this is a worldview. What we are immersed in is this worldview. We have retained this radical individualism, but we have rejected this sort of modern age optimism. And what you get, what you get is individualism and cynicism. That is the world in which we are constantly steeped in. We're cynical that the world is going somewhere as a grand story toward progress or toward, as the Christians would call, the, the kingdom of God is, is how we see that. It's not toward social, societal progress on our own. It's toward God moving through creation, moving us into the kingdom. We're cynical about those things in society today, but we're very much into autonomy. We're very much into individuality. Individualism is king in our time that postmodernity grew weary. We grew weary of objective, scientific, rational ways of life. And so what we seek now today is subjective experience. We seek emotive encounter, and we seek intuitive relativism. If it's right for me, then it must be true. And what's right for you must be true as long as we don't inter interfere with one another. That's sort of what we have received in our time. In other words, there's nothing that is in a vacuum. Everything is in connection to what has come before us. In a nutshell, the average Instagram feed kind of sums up the world that we're in right now, right? The world of the selfie, the world of excess, the world of experience, all the time. And what we have here is a society driven by the pursuit of things like this. And these aren't all wrong, so don't see these as me throwing stones. But what you see is a society driven by personal rights, by perpetual consumption, by the development of a constructed identity. In other words, and that's directly opposed to the Christian stance, that our, our stance is that Christ has, has made identity happen for us through grace, through the cross, and we receive identity. We don't construct it through our jobs and through our success and through all those things. All those things are well and fine, but our identities are in Christ. But our society is, would say you are what you make of yourself. The innovation of more technology, efficient technology, the incessant search for intense experience, endless choices for consumers, loss of shared experiences, transient relationships, plurality of approaches to sexual expression and gender, increasingly two-tiered economy with many dead-end jobs, privatized spirituality, privatized spirituality, rampant racism, feelings of anger or resentment because someone has left us with a mess, these are what demographic studies are finding that I pulled from the 1990s. In other words, we're continuing this trail, and I think it's only increased in the last 20 years. Now, why does this matter? Why, why would I even bother to take you through a history of where we are and how we've got here? Because when Paul comes along in Galatians 5, he calls us to cultivate this fruit of the Spirit 
called self-control. And what I want you to see is that self-control is in drastic opposition to where our society is headed. There's nothing about this fruit of the Spirit that is in sort of congruence with where society has been going for the last 400 years. The wheels have been coming off the bus with this fruit for a long, long time. And in our time, when our individual's personal conscience is the final authority to what is and isn't true, self-control isn't just rare, it's almost extinct. And what happens is it means that the the postmodern understanding of of what we have been given in our time of what is true, what it wants to do is divide your life into self-contained, disintegrated moments of existence that don't necessarily integrate toward a grand story that God is doing. In fact, God may not even exist in our cultural milieu. But the idea of saying that God has the whole world and is leading it somewhere toward renewal is laughable to post-modernity, which would say, just live your life and do what you want to do. You have a work life, you have a home life, you have a, a family life, you have a hobby life, you have all these lives, and they don't necessarily intersect, and none of them are really like necessarily going anywhere cohesively. They just are, so enjoy life and get back to business as usual. And that's sort of what we have bought in our time. And it means this, that whatever you desire in any given moment, if it feels right, it's probably true. That's what we've inherited And in that world, who needs self-control? In other words, we've come a long, long way since Socrates. You know, just before you get to this text in Galatians 5, one of the things I said last week that that might be helpful is is to read the book of Galatians in one sitting. It takes no more than 30 minutes. It's only six little small chapters, this letter. And right before you get to Paul saying, this is the fruit of the Spirit, he goes through this list saying, this is not the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is in violation to what God wants to do in you. And here's the list. Here's what he says right before the fruit of the Spirit. Not my words. These are Paul's words. He says, things that go against the kingdom of God in your life, the way that Jesus has called you to human flourishing, here's the things that go against that that we're seduced into. Into fornication, he says in verse 19. In other words, intercourse outside of covenant marriage. Not because sex is dirty, actually far from it, because sex is sacred. It's so sacred. Because I think what Paul is saying and what the scriptures teach is that the covenant relationship is the only context in which a true fullness of expression of the bodies symbolize what's happening by the souls. These coming together as one. And he says that fornication is against that. And he says impurity. And he says licentiousness, which means a lack of self-restraint. Now, I think it's fascinating that the first things he lists here are sexual sins because they're pervasive in these sorts of cultures, in ancient Rome and in our society today in the Western context. That there's sort of this understanding that you can do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't actually impact your soul. But we sort of intuitively know that it actually leads to brokenness. It leads to to people feeling fractured and insecure. And I think it's interesting that he deals with sexual sin first. In other words, sexuality is a really big deal. It's not some small thing. And it really matters, the way in which we see our bodies, the way in which we utilize them, the way in which we move against exploiting others for our our own objectivity. And so Paul is getting into this saying, like, these things matter when it comes, if you want to see the fruit of the Spirit come out of your life, 
You need to take these things seriously. And he says beyond that, idolatry. In other words, anything that rivals loyalty to God as king in your life, it's an idol. And he says envy and drunkenness and carousing and things like these. Carousing is a funny term in our time. It, it basically, it's the, carousing is the sound of someone walking down the street at 1 a.m. inebriated. That's the sound of carousing when you look up that term. He says, I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, why? Because they're not putting themselves in a position where the kingdom of God actually comes through their life. They're living life in such a way that is resistant to that. So why should they expect the kingdom of life to come through their life? That wouldn't make sense for the kingdom of God to come through their life if they're not even aligned with it. And so these are the things Paul wants, Paul wants to bring up. Now, here's what I don't want to do in our remaining time. I don't want to throw moral stones at you. I don't want to take this list and put it on your back because truthfully, I'd be the first to receive a stone in this room. I don't want to heap up copious amounts of shame and put them on your shoulders for you to go out there and try harder and white knuckle your ethics and pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. We've probably heard that lecture before on what we need to stop doing. And there's probably some validity to it. But what I'm interested in for the remainder of our time is what do we start doing to see the fruit of the spirit of self-control come through our life? Rather than, start, rather than only saying, move away from this, I'm really interested in saying, move toward this. Because if you move toward this, these sorts of things begin to take care of themselves. Because you begin to orient your life in such a way where this really is no longer important anymore. You're really not trying for this anymore because there's so much abundance here that that now feels cheap. And it feels like lessening who God has designed me to be and who Christ is calling me to be. That self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. I'll say that again. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you can't force it. You can only nurture life in such a way where fruit emerges. And what I'm interested in is positioning my life in such a way where self-control simply becomes more natural, or maybe as we'd say it, more supernatural. Where Paul's long list above that we just looked at, it no longer has a grip on my heart because I know all those behaviors, they promise, they promise some sort of, 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 of good life for me, but I know they lead me to shame and to grief into loneliness, and they have nothing in common with the kingdom of God in my life. So I simply want to offer two things as we close today. Um, I want to talk about briefly where we're headed, and two things under that, where we're headed. I think the first thing is this, and again, what I want to end on is what do we, what do we start doing? What do we start doing? The first thing I think we have to do is we have to reclaim living in story. Because what the postmodern worldview wants to do is disintegrate your life into fragments of self-contained scenes. And what the gospel does is it orients our whole life around what God is doing, and God is writing a story of redemption. So how do we begin to live in that story as the primary way in which we see ourselves? In other words, when Jesus came to earth, do you know what his first words were? His first words were, repent and receive the kingdom of God. Now he said repent, not to say you're awful, you're in shame, and you should repent, the way it's been constructed today. He said repent to say, turn 
is what the word repent means. The direction you're going is not in congruence with my kingdom. So would you just receive my invitation of grace in turn? You don't have to sit in shame for the rest of your life. You don't have to to do some acrobatic spiritual feats to earn my love. I'm calling you to turn toward me because you've been turning your life away from me. So would you turn because the kingdom of God is in your midst? Would you do that? Would you turn toward the story that I'm writing? Renounce a former life that tried to sell you something and it was false goods and receive what I have for you. In other words, over and against the postmodern theory, Jesus came announcing a grand story where all this is headed. And if you've never heard that story, the story in a nutshell goes like this, that God and Jesus has broken into our fractured lives, giving us an eternal meaning and is restoring all creation to its original intent. Don't believe me, read Matthew, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 7, or 5, verse 17. And that story, the story of the gospel, it speaks to our addictions. It speaks to our lusts. It speaks to my cravings. It speaks to insatiable greed and outbursts of anger. And here is what the gospel story is saying to us. The gospel story is saying, don't settle for cheap immediacy when I'm offering you eternity. All of the lists that we look in in Paul, you know what it is? It's cheap substitutes of immediacy. Things that we can grasp now to, to feel better because often we feel numb. And God is saying, I have so much better for you. The gospel sums us to live in a story that is so much greater than our momentary sensations. And our momentary sensations, they always overpromise and always underdeliver. That is one thing you can count on with a life away from the kingdom of God is that those temptations and seductions, they always overpromise. They always look great on the outside, but they always underdeliver making us feel lonely, making us feel shameful, making us feel broken, and no better, in fact, worse than when we engaged in that kind of life. I love, here's a lawyer from Brooklyn that I read in a book uh, who I think is just right on. His name's James Cab. He says, the postmodern tenant, whatever you want to do is okay, so as long as it doesn't conflict with, with the equally okay things other people want to do, is not a substantial guide to life. It's just not a substantial guide to your life. There's no vision in it. There's no sort of story of where's my life headed? And what am I called to give my life to? And, and where is their meaning and significance? And what I've found in my life, just speaking personally, when I've lost self-control in my life, whether it be through lusts, whether it be through addictions, whether it be through cravings, whether it be through things that I thought were gonna bring satisfaction and didn't in the end, it is because 10 out of 10 times, I've lost sight of the story I'm called to believe. I've lost sight in that moment that I'm called to something greater than just this cheap substitute in front of me. And I've lost sight of that, and so I move into it because I think it's gonna bring satisfaction, and it doesn't. I think that's why it's so important that we worship in church, because we're reminded of our story when we sing the songs, when we hear the scriptures, when we respond to them, we are reminded there there is a greater story that I'm called to live into. 
reading scripture matters. You know, scripture, I think I've said this before, the root root of scripture is script. If you're an artist or a performer in this room, scripts are the story that we live. I read the Bible not because I should read the Bible. I read the Bible because it's my script for living. It shows me the way Jesus has called me to, to be human. And I'll just say this, God's call on your life for flourishing is better than your call on your life for flourishing. Not that your call on your life for flourishing is all bad. I would just say God's, God's vision of flourishing in your life is always an upgrade from whatever mine is. I have ideas. You know, you know how to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. I have all these ideas. And then what I'll find is I'll submit them to God. And God will blow my mind with such a greater vision and imagination and breakthrough that I wouldn't have even, even conceived of through my own thoughts, as good as they may be. And what I find is that, that I lose sight of that story. And so I think it's so important that if we are really going to start doing something that helps with the cravings and the addictions and the lusts, we have to remember a greater story that God is calling us to. Because when we lose sight of that, everything becomes these micro scenes in our life where we just kind of give ourselves and are in flux to whatever feels right in the moment. But there is a grand story God is writing. And that's how we're called to see ourselves in this world. And the second thing is this, not just living in that story, but living from wisdom. Now, what do I mean by that? This is the biggest breakthrough I've had in my life when it comes to living in self-control. What I know is that list that Paul wrote about, or even the list that you would even write about today, of things that you thought would bring satisfaction, but just don't. When we enter back into them, what wisdom wants to tell us is this. Hey, AJ, remember what that felt like last time and how you, de- you were deceived? Why don't you take this moment and fast forward the tape 10 minutes, two hours, three days, one month, and remember how you're going to feel in your future? And why don't you live from that place in the future and bring it into your present to show you how you need to respond right now to whatever temptation is in front of you. I find this connects so much with men because we're so often seduced by, and and we're we're so given, and and women aren't too, I don't mean, in no way am I trying to be like gender specific and sexist in any way. Men are just like more prone to sensory experience in, in, in a lot of ways, not in every way, but sometimes we're just so easily given to sensory experience. And, and thinking about, I don't want the shame that's going to come with X or Y or Z two days from now. I know what that feels like. I need to live from wisdom. I need to see in my head, this is how this is going to play out. I always think it's going to be different, but it's never different. It's always the same. So what if I lived from that future sense and brought that into my present? And then I walked in that way. And I lived in that way. There are these moments where, where you're about to do something and you get this sort of, this sort of debate in your mind, like, whoa, 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 you know, you know where that leads. You know what that's going to lead to. This sort of conversation that happens. And let me just say what that is, because there's a word for it. I think it's revelation. I think it's the spirit of the living God whispering truth over your life, saying, I'm not going to force your hand, but I'm going to whisper to you, there's a better way. This isn't it. We've been down this road before. You remember where it goes. I have something for you. Walk in it. Receive something better. Not because I want to oppress you or dominate you, but because I want to lead you into flourishing. Just 
know that this isn't what you really want. Two questions that I think we'll just end on this morning. I want us to reflect on these for the next couple of minutes. I'm going to have the band come and just, just underscore this moment. And I think the first question is this, and I, I really want to trust that God's presence is in this room, that um, I would ask it and just invite you to perhaps maybe for the first time believe that, that God does speak and that God does prompt, God nudges, God, God reveals and opens up areas of your minds that, that are just things that sometimes we ignore. And I just, I just want to invite you into that for the next couple of minutes. And the first question is this. I want, I want you inwardly to just ask this question. Where is my life disoriented from the kingdom of God? Like right now in life, like where am I finding a split? Jesus is calling me to anchor and orient my life towards God's kingdom. Where is there rivalry for God's kingdom in my life right now? Just in the quietness of your heart. Like if you were to assess that question, where, where am I just not in any sort of alignment with what the scriptures say about what it means to live life? Like where is that disorientation? And the second question is this. What wisdom, God, have you been trying to reveal to me that I've not been paying attention to? That it's, it's your wisdom. It's not just like another thought in my head. It's your wisdom. And I've been ignoring it. And it's time for me to start paying attention. It's time for me to start doing this and living in story and living from wisdom. Because if I do that, how would that resource me to stop all these patterns that I know aren't me. I know they aren't what I really long for. And so let's just sit with those questions for a couple minutes. Band's just going to sit here. We don't have anywhere to go for the next five minutes or so. So we're just going to sit in that for one or two minutes and just ask those questions. God, would you come and just reveal those to me that I might walk more fully in my life. In the name of Jesus, amen.